0: Hi, this
1: is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Tysha Tyler. Troy Colquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyer. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. We have an absolutely incredible show for you this week. Two of my favorites, the Magnetic Fields, Stephen Merritt, in conversation with Jarvis Cocker. It's the Elia Einhorn dream pairing. <laughs> it sure is. And that voice joining me to intro today's episode is Josh Modell live from Chicago on tape. Live on tape, baby. That's right. This is definitely an Elia Core podcast. These are two of the greatest living songwriters with witty, literate lyrics. Often dissecting the multiplicity of sex, they have reimagined what songwriting can look like and accomplish. And Josh, since this year, they both have great new music in the world. When I heard that Jarvis was coming to New York, I simply had to, if at all humanly possible, get them together in a studio for a TalkHouse podcast episode. Thankfully, they were both super psyched at the opportunity.
2: And of course, this recording was made in the before time uh, back in late February <laughs> when two people could sit in the same room together and have a conversation. BC, before coronavirus. That's right. So Jarvis, obviously, like you said, was in New York and he and Stephen joined us at Hook and Fade Studios in Brooklyn. Yeah.
1: It was really a magical time. And uh, the two, of course, chatted over cups of tea. It's only natural. What's your brand? Well, I'll tell you. Stephen is a green tea drinker. Jarvis likes a British cup. But since we didn't have milk... They both had green tea, and I sent Jarvis out with a huge box of English PG tips. Oh. He was quite happy about that.
2: I'm a Barry's Gold myself, but...
1: Ah, tough guy.
2: I'm real working class.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jarvis Cocker, of course, was the leader of Pulp. That's the group he founded in Sheffield, England in the late 70s, while only 15 years old. He guided various permutations of the band through its artsy intellectual phase, its funhouse weirdo phase, and its ascent as massive chart-topping festival headlining pop stars during the Britpop era. Since then, Jarvos dropped two wonderful solo records under his own name and a collaboration with Chile Gonzalez, which explores the history of Chateau Marmont. Jarvis has also appeared in films. He was famously in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, leading the band The Weird Sisters, as well as Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox. He also spent seven years turning people onto amazing music, new and old, with his radio show Jarvis Cocker's Sunday Service on BBC Six. He's a busy man. He's a very busy man. His new band is called Jarv Is, two different words. They've released two singles, and the group's debut LP, Beyond the Pale, was recorded partly live on stage as well as overdubbed in the studio. Now, that record was set to be released this month, but due to the pandemic, the release has been pushed and it's now going to drop September 4th. One of the songs that's out now and that comes up in today's talk and one of my favorites from the record, which I've been lucky enough to hear, is House Music All Night Long. Let's take a listen.
0: I was listening to house music all night long
1: An old day too
2: I mean, that is classic Jarvis, right? It's great. Everything that dude touches is at the very least interesting and at the very best, the best. Amen.
1: Make sure to pre-order the record at store.roughtraderecords.com
2: right now. All seven songs are fantastic. (laughs) Seven songs. If you want four times as many good songs, though, (laughs) you got to get the new Magnetic Fields record uh, because that one has 28 songs on it. Uh, In this way, uh, these guys are different. (laughs) So yes, Jarvis, as we know, is speaking this week with Stephen Merritt, who is the auteur behind not only the Magnetic Fields, but Collaborations Projects, The Six, Goth Bubblegum Act, The Gothic Archies, and The Synth Popper's Future Bible Heroes. Love them all. So great. And different. Very different. But of course, he is best known for the Magnetic Fields, which started in Boston way back in 1989, relocated to New York City in the 90s. The band variously draws from synth-pop folk, show tunes, indie rock, and more to create a frequently expanding variety show-esque catalog of songs.
1: Regular listeners will have caught Steven on our show last year when he celebrated the 20th anniversary of his incomparable triple album, 69 Love Songs. That was a great convo with Daniel Handler, a.k.a. the author Lemony Snicket, who plays accordion on a bunch of Steven's records across projects.
2: Yeah, and again, 69 songs... Versus seven. I'm just saying. <laughs> and Stephen doesn't just stop with pop music. He also writes operas. He's a published author. He has a book of quatrains about Scrabble's shortest moves, 101 two-letter words. It's That's illustrated by Roz Chast. Yeah, the dude is, uh, is a polymath.
1: Yeah, and he's also written for film and television. His credits there include Pieces of April, Coraline, Eben, and Charlie. And don't forget The Adventures of Pete and Pete. A fantastic series, which we could go off on probably for hours. Now, the Magnetic Field's new record is titled Quickies, and like you said, Josh, it features 28 songs. They're all well under three minutes long, the shortest coming in at only 13 seconds. That drops May 15th, and besides streaming, it's available as a single CD or as the version that I pre-ordered, a 5-7-inch vinyl box set. I mean, if you're going to do it, fucking do it,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to listen to an album by sitting in front of their turntable and turning over a record every three minutes? (laughs) so
1: convenient. It's the Discord Records way. There you go. Let's check out a clip of one of the singles from Quickies. This is The Day the Politicians Died.
3: Celebration spread worldwide.
1: Awesome. The man is a genius. Love it. Jarvis and Steven get into a lot in this conversation. We hear their takes on the art of songwriting and how they both love to subvert its norms in different ways. In that segment, we even get to hear what Paul McCartney told Jarvis
2: about he and John Lennon's process. We also hear about the very different ways each approached the making of their new albums. They get into their philosophies
1: of choosing collaborators and the very exact correct usage of lyric
2: sheets. Yeah, don't do that wrong or Jarvis will get very upset. <laughs> we also hear a moving discussion of reunions with their showbiz fathers who had abandoned them at very young ages. It's, it gets deep and it gets deep quick.
1: I was surprised they went there, but as they did, it was, it was emotional and because it's these two somehow even funny at times, but uh, it, it was a powerful moment. Definitely. They also cover the bad omen that nearly caused Jarvis to retire from music in the year 2000. We hear why Steven's new sexual fetish might be a one-time-only experience. (laughs) (laughs) And they cover therapy-inducing termites, eating comic cleanser for art, as well as their shared love of that hippie-looking fellow, Richard Brodigan. I've got a note before we roll the tape here. This episode is dedicated to all of the, as Jarvis so succinctly put it years ago, misshapes, mistakes, misfits. For each of you, and because these truly brilliant minds may never again meet, I'll let this show run a bit longer than most TalkHouse podcast episodes. I really do think you're gonna enjoy it. Let's roll it. Let's hear it.
3: Your are Jarvis Cocker.
0: I am, yeah. Probably. That's correct. In your Stephen Merritt, probably. Probably. You're a talker, right? Well, I I do talk, yeah.
3: I am um, not a talker and need to be uh, prodded into Uh, uh, remembering to talk, uh, but I will try and speak every 30 seconds.
0: Okay. What exactly 30 seconds?
3: When I haven't spoken (laughs) for 30 seconds, I'll say um or uh.
0: Okay. That sounds good, yeah.
3: My mother actually had to teach me To use little placeholder syllables uh, rather than very long, awkward pauses.
0: Right. And so, did you have to kind of practice that? I did. Yeah. I I presented a radio show in the UK for a while. Yeah. And so I would interview people. And then I nod my head. Yeah. I, I realized that it was good just to assure the other person that you're listening to them or that you're still there and also to assure the listener at home that you haven't kind of gone off and left the interviewee in the studio on their own right gone off to the loo yeah yeah. so I have recently made friends with uh, Luke Jenner yeah he told me that he'd uh, spoken to you so how did you meet him we were
3: both guests at Xavier's Ladies of Soul show at Joe's Pub in which we did the Shaka Khan Special Edition. I sang "Chanson Papillon." Okay, uh, and he sang. I think it's called "Still." He was much better than I was, um, but you know, oddly, he sounds more like Shaka Khan than I do. Really? Can you imagine?
0: Um, not really. No. You know, <laughs> uh,
3: I sounded maybe a little more like Shaka Khan than you do,
0: but not much. Mm and how long ago was this a week oh, right. so recently yeah. yes i saw luke last time i was here in um, i've met him in the past like mm-hmm. bumped into him how you do you often bump into other singers at uh, festivals and things i think i was going through marriage difficulties at the time and maybe he was having some similar thing, so we sometimes used to talk about, oh, yes. about those things. Which is not really what you're supposed to talk about at festivals, is it? You're <laughs> not supposed to have soul-searching conversations about where your life's at. And yet, oddly, that happens again and again. Yeah.
3: I have been told about a large number of impending divorces.
0: At festivals? Yes.
3: Uh, and being interviewed by people who look like they're about to cry, I... You know, I tend to ask them why they look like they're about to cry. (laughs) And then they actually
0: tell me. Right. I'm a good listener. Yeah. Bad talker, a good listener. No, but that's nice. That's good that you take an interest in the interviewer. Sure.
3: It's better than having to seem like I'm interested in myself, which I never am. I'm really only interested in other people. I already know about myself.
0: And I'd rather not think about it. But that's—I mean—that's interesting because now we're we're speaking together without really a a formal um, interview situation. I I, I agree with you to a certain extent about that. You know that I haven't been doing interviews for a long time. You know, I I had quite a long period where I I didn't really release any music and um, and so didn't do any interviews. Mm -hmm. And it's—I nod my head. Yeah, and it's only in the last kind of. couple of months that I've started doing that again. And the first interview that I had to do, it went on for like about two and a half hours. And then, Oh my God. Yeah. And then I had like to, New York, New York. And then I had to go and lie down for like a couple of hours because <laughs> it felt really weird. It feels like a self obsession type of thing. Why on earth was the interview two and a half hours long? I'm a slow talker, I guess. I don't know. I, I think I just I hadn't done it for so long that I'd just kind of forgotten that you, could, you were allowed to say okay we're done now or whatever or, you know what I mean I just right well it's been good talking to you <laughs> well I, maybe we could talk about that you know do you think it takes the fun out of making music when you have to kind of explain, explain it, it all and, the time yeah. it certainly does yes yeah. there are strategies for uh,
3: getting around that like the Warholian simply lie all the time strategy, and some people just refused to discuss the music. Like Marky Smith wouldn't talk about music at all during mm. interviews, which I guess made him talk about politics, which is probably not any more interesting. At least to an American, Marky Smith talking about British politics makes
0: my eyes glaze over. Right. Because I have no idea what he's talking about. None. Yeah. I
2: think, Zero.
0: I think they had... Distinct political views, sure, which would make sense to, in kill the UK. Kill Thatcher, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, whether it would translate, I don't know. That's that's true.
3: Uh, we we actually did have a, uh, an attempt on Reagan, so I guess that that sort of translated. Mm. But no one actually tried to kill Thatcher, did
0: they? No, they did. They did. There oh, yeah? was a there was a bombing in, in uh, Brighton uh-huh. uh, where they kind of blew up the conservative party conference was taking place and uh, they blew up a hotel uh, and i think that was an attempt to get her in the process yeah mm. didn't work i'd love to blow up a hotel <laughs> i guess i shouldn't say that into a no, microphone you're gonna, you're gonna get <laughs> it unwanted. sounds like so much get fun. Unwelcome attention uh, if you say things like yes. that, you don't I, want an FBI profile doing on you, do you?
3: I've recently been hearing about uh, people whose sexual fetish is explosives. That and sounds very dangerous. I think I might have that.
0: <laughs> it does sound dangerous, well, but it also sounds fun. But it's maybe just like a one-off.
2: Because
0: yes, if you yeah, took that, it, if you took it, possible. Yeah. If you took it to its logical extreme, that would be the end of you, wouldn't it? Like Armin Mievis, however you pronounce his last name, uh, you can do that once, but you can't do it again. Maybe that's why we don't hear about it that much. Because not many people live to tell the tale. Right. (laughs) My life in explosives. Yeah, but maybe it's the ultimate high, I don't
3: know. Sure. So, uh, there are a lot of background vocals on your new album. Um,
0: I've never heard that
3: before. That
0: is a radical departure for you. and They're practically duets in some tracks. That's true. I've never really been in a band where other people in the band could sing before. Right. But also, yeah, it's me like having a dialogue with the women in the band. Yes. And I kind of liked that. Uh, Rather than just kind of it being a one-sided thing, I thought it's good if... It's like a conversation going on. Yes. Part of what makes you, you,
3: is uh, the sense that the narrator is uh, kind of uh, sexually creepy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So nice of you to say. In in many, many songs. I mean, obviously you have more than one persona. But uh, Uh, having that dialogue between the genders makes that a completely different dynamic.
0: In a good way. Yes. Good. Um, uh, how did you decide on that? It kind of happened because, so there are two women in the band called Serafina and Emma. And Serafina, oh, no, I had, my head. I had uh, produced a record for her in the past. And we, so we're quite good friends. And I asked her to be in the band. And I think it started, there's a song on the record called Must I Evolve? and yes. I was singing all these questions. Not really expecting an answer, but then she just started singing yes, 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 no, no, no. Oh, really? So and on the sheet music version, the responses might not actually be there. Well, I don't think there will be a sheet music
3: version. But were there to be? Did they still do those? Uh,
0: Beck did one a few years ago. He the album that, came out entirely on sheet music. That song reader thing, yes, yeah. yes, I, I did know that. But that's a bit of an anomaly. Yes, I think that's his only uh, sheet music album so far.
3: I always think if I went deaf, I could simply do that, like for a living, have put out a very small living, uh, put out records that were just written down and then let other people on YouTube do the covers that they already do. And I would just not get any royalties, but that's okay, that's life. But, but I'd have
0: can, grants. So that means you, you, must, you can write me and read music, can you? I can. Yeah, see, I can't. Oh. That revenue stream wouldn't exist for me. Although if you could uh,
3: sing into a tape recorder while not hearing yourself, somebody could transcribe it for you.
0: I guess so. But then, for example. All right, okay. Sure. Okay. Well, maybe we can discuss that later. Uh, if you're struck <laughs> deaf. Uh, I'm getting that way. Oh,
3: dear. You are... Or at least uh, you have been. The two pulp shows that I saw, you were the only band I've ever seen who are louder than Einschurz and Neubauten. Really? Yes. I've never seen The Who. Right. Who I guess are even louder than you are. Okay. But I've seen Bob Mold play the acoustic guitar, and that was pretty damn loud. (laughs) I
0: like music to be loud. Uh I mean, I. I... You, You go to raves. Not now. But I like to feel music. Do you use like in-ear monitors or anything like that? Me? You know, you... I don't have monitors at all. Oh,
3: really? I have hyperacusis in my left ear, so right. I actually can't be around... So you around can't listen sounds. to loud music? Uh, at this point, I, I would have to have aircraft headphones on right. to go to a show anywhere near as loud as pop. Right.
0: I apologize. Uh, Are you still that loud on stage? Probably, because I have tried to avoid it. Like Now people have these in-ear monitors so that it doesn't have to be so loud. But But, you can't feel that. Exactly. So I've just kind of taken it as an occupational hazard, I guess. Uh If I want to have... If if for some reason I feel the need... that You have to feel it like shaking your bones, then you just can have to... Except the fact that you're probably going to go quite deaf, or you could have the bass cab, a uh, bass
3: monitor, shaking the stage you're standing on, well, that, and have the rest of it in your ear and ear monitor.
0: We've got a lot to discuss. We've got like we can discuss <laughs> transcription, and we can <clears> discuss <throat> setup, or we could discuss songwriting <laughs> and people. I remember that our drummer had this thing. He, he had a little. As drummers often do, sometimes they'll speed up or stuff like that, you know, they Uh they have difficulty keeping a steady tempo. Which is much harder than it sounds. Yeah, exactly. And he had this special stool. I shouldn't really be telling you this, really, but he had this stool that it sounds a bit similar to what you were just describing. It had like a bass speaker in the stool. That's a good idea. (laughs) So as you played, it was kind of sending you a pulse through your through nether your, through, regions, through your, through your backside, yeah to, yeah, to kind of help you keep time. But I always thought that must be a weird feeling. But oh, I don't know. Actually, anyway, that was it's
3: essentially the have, same maybe, feeling. Maybe I that could you have some clothes
0: on. made that had a similar kind of effect. Right, Laurie Anderson
3: used to have a, a suit that was a drum kit, where she would tap different parts of her clothing and it would make drum sounds. Anything that can be a uh, trigger can also be a speaker, so you could have a suit that was different parts of the music yeah, playing in different areas of a, your form. monitor suit, yeah. Uh-huh. We should patent that. Uh, so, yes, yes. I think um, bass speakers in the bottoms of your shoes. Yeah. Um, Good for plantar fasciitis.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the fact that well, I was thinking, I was listening to your record on the plane. Which one? Was the, the latest one, the Quickies one. Quickies, oh. Yeah. So You're the only one who has heard it, who doesn't work at a record level. All right. Yeah, and I thought it was almost like, because I've just finished making a record, and it's only got seven songs, and they're all really long. Which yes, I, don't I wanted really to know. ask you about the side breaks. Yeah, well, the, we can go and talk about Yeah. But then I wondered why, and then you've got a record that's got like 28... 28 songs on five seven-inch discs. Oh, yes. is that what it is? Yes. Right, I didn't know about the formats because I just got like a digital link to it. Right. Okay. In the okay. vinyl
3: version, your you have break, to basically sit breaks. there and keep <laughs> changing the record for the
0: entire 40 minutes or whatever it is. Well, c- can you tell me a bit about how that came? You know, Why do you think you've ended up making this record of, of short songs? I was originally making 19 records of short songs and it got
3: whittled down to one mm. when suddenly someone at the record label realized that putting out 19 records was more difficult than putting out one record. Mm.
0: But but what brought you to kind of whittling the songs down to short lengths? Record label preferences. Right. Should I not be
3: saying that? I don't, <laughs> um, no, I, lots of... Lots of artistic decisions end up being made by record labels. The idea for my last record, 50 Song Memoir, came from lunch with the president of Nonesuch. So I'm I'm not at all disturbed by record label people being in the decision-making process. Yeah.
0: It is kind of a collaboration. They don't go into the studio, but... No, but so is that important for you to have like a... A concept first, you know, like oh, yes. a brief that, okay, I'm going to do this and then kind of fulfill that brief. Yes. Right. Otherwise, I have no idea what to do. No, it's interesting because I, I wondered about that. You know, I, I don't do that. And that's probably why it's taken me like almost 10 years to make a record because I just, apart from carrying a notebook all the time, which I'll write ideas down in as they come to me i haven't really got a, a working practice do you no, know what i mean i haven't got right. a structure i do i
3: deliberately sit in bars for a few hours every day and have the notebook out i may not write anything in it i half the time don't write anything at all but it's important to me to have the routine mm.
0: yeah i kind of wish i could do that do you have children and wives I've got a, a son, yeah. Yes. Um, um, and does that take up a lot of time? It has done, but he's yes. he's now nearly 17, so he, he doesn't really... Oh, so oh, he, he doesn't do, want to talk to you anymore? He do, He will talk to me uh-huh. under duress. Uh-huh. No, <laughs> actually, I, right. I, no, he's okay with me, but sure. naturally he would rather hang out with other people than me, uh-huh. which is healthy, I think, uh-huh. you know. It would be pretty weird if you just wanted to hang out with me right you can't be cool to your children indefinitely i'm trying
3: yeah (laughs) what do i know i
0: don't have any surviving children no but it's uh it's it's an issue actually in the band at the moment because the two female members have both become mothers seraphina only about four months ago and and Emma who plays the violin, like about a year and a bit ago. So, the next tour is going to be some kind of weird crash kind of situation. So, have um, you ever so yeah, that? we uh,
3: Claudia, the pianist, had a baby just before we went on tour a few years ago, nine years ago, and she brought the baby on tour um, with a nanny. Mm when the baby was young enough that it didn't need its own plane... She didn't need her own plane seat. I'm still calling it It. She's nine years old. Uh, she's reading Harry Potter and I'm calling her It. Uh, she was on the plane every day and we learned a lot about how bodily rhythms translate into mood changes mm. such that every day at 3 p.m. if the baby was not allowed to go to sleep she would begin shrieking at which point she couldn't go to sleep because she was shrieking Uh, and it's clear that we all work that way Uh, our our apparent moods are actually reactions to whether or not we are allowed to sleep when we want to and things Mm. like that and eat when we want to do you have the word hangry uh, yeah, in the UK, yeah, uh, it's a recent coinage, I think, but it's 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 an important concept. It is, yeah, but especially with babies. But it uh, does but, so anyway. That's a, a yeah.
0: warning. Don't take the babies on tour. <laughs> well, we haven't really got any. There's no uh, choice in it, really. We if we want to go on tour, we're going to have to. So we'll see. I mean, I, I used to bring my son on tour. Um, I think when the very could young could you it's tour okay. in, a, in a bus rather than a plane I prefer to avoid those buses Me too yeah. everyone gets sick and it's also like going to sleep in a coffin every night Yes because you you go in those little bunks and you yeah, yeah you just kind of you, you're looking at a kind of carpeted ceiling
3: What about forcing the the new mothers and their babies to travel by bus while you uh, jet set around the world
0: That would Probably not.
3: Look so good. Uh-huh. It's just that plane travel is basically child abuse for babies. It's horrible for them. Mm. Um, but of course, that's not your decision necessarily to make. It may be child abuse, but it's not you. But doing the child me, abuse. You
0: have given me food for thought. Mm. You really have. I nod my head. Uh, when does the album come out? May the first. Yeah. And are you touring on it? Well, not now that you've told me that it's a bad idea. <laughs> uh, we were. I'm going to have to break no, just the, the air news. air travel. After this podcast, I'm going to have to go and break the news to my manager. It's, it's all off. Oh, no. Stephen no. says it's a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> just just for the babies. <laughs> and will you perform the, the Quickies record? Uh, we're performing bits of the Quickies record
3: interspersed with other things. I, I didn't want to do a Quickies-only tour. Some of these songs are literally 12 seconds long, so it would be a strange show it would. where the audience would but be required you gonna, to clap you every 12 seconds. Try it, yeah. Um, so, no, we're just going to do like 10 of the quickies interspersed with other traditional material. But the next album is almost done. <laughs> <laughs> <But>. <laughs> because t- I'm so a lunatic.
0: Tell me about this thing then. That So it's going to be on seven inch, five, five seven, seven inch records. Yes. So... Is this idea, people don't really have those auto changes on record players anymore, do they? Uh, no, so people would... will have
3: to sit there and change the records themselves it. every three or four minutes. Yeah. That... Which basically means you need to have a chair sitting in front of the turntable, which I do. Yeah? Yeah. Well, how far away? Directly in front of the turntable. All right. All One right. foot. My turntable is on a desk, right. so the, the, the chair actually, my knees are under the turntable when I'm well, where are the Pretty speakers, good. though? Uh, immediately,
0: on opposite sides. Right. Which I was wondering about your problem. stereo image that you're getting from that.
3: Uh, well, because I'm right there, the stereo image, is,
0: the separation is really good. Oh, yeah, I bet that's true, because I remember when we were mixing records, I always used to go and stand behind the speakers and, mm-hmm. and then put my head right between them. You get, you get like the proper kind of... You feel like you're actually inside the song then, don't you? Yes, and it's like wearing headphones. Yeah. But you can hear what's really going on.
3: Really big ones. You. Really big ones, yes. <laughs> I always wonder why the turntable doesn't skip when I play something thuddy, but I haven't had a problem with it yet.
0: Okay. Maybe this isn't the most interesting question ever, but have you got a good quality hi fi? No. Right. Have you ever owned a good quality hi fi? I
3: have, um, but what? it's in storage because termites. Termites? Technically, they're post-Beatles, but yes, my house
0: has (laughs) been attacked. All right, so the the hi-fi didn't have termites,
3: but you were worried it might get them. The hi-fi was uh, on the first floor of my house, and the first floor of my house was eaten by termites. Mm. And now the basement is an atrium. Right. (laughs) My life is in uproar. Yeah. It's awful. I'm now in therapy because of this. Have you ever been in therapy?
0: Or are you now? Mm. Uh, I'm not at the moment, no, but Mm. I have, I mean, I resisted. I I should, when I look back, I think, why didn't I try that earlier? Because as soon as you actually talk to someone about what's going on in your head, it instantly makes it a lot easier, I think. Sort of silly even. Yeah. Like,
3: oh, I feel abandoned because my father abandoned me when i was negative one month old well gee that was 55 years ago and you still feel abandoned uh i guess that's silly isn't
0: it end of issue you know you brought up a subject that i was going to talk to you about actually or i was thinking of because um what you've just been talking about with your father and then i believe you, you did you get to meet him not that long ago uh, yes, within the
3: last few years, I, I have met him twice. Right. Both times at screenings of a documentary that he was in about Doc Pomas, the 50s and 60s yeah. songwriter, who was his manager. I noted from uh, trying to read your Wikipedia entry on the way here to brush up that uh, both of us went to film school in the late 80s and had fathers in show business. are yeah, So we're exact, that's but, why we're exactly the same person. <laughs> well, I was wondering about that
0: because I... Which is why you never see us in the <laughs> same room. And um, how did you find that, if you don't mind me asking you about it? How, because the reason I feel able to ask you is because I've got a slightly similar situation that my father disappeared when I was very young and then... I tracked him down when I was maybe in my mid to late thirties. And he was in Australia, so that was a big deal, tracking him down. Yeah. But I never managed to really establish a a reasonable relationship with him at all. Right. I I mean, my experience was that it was just like, it was really awkward because it was like, you know, you're thinking, well, this is my dad, you know, there's got to be a strong bond here. (laughs) But (laughs) I didn't, I just didn't know him, you know, it was just, he was a stranger. Sure. So it, it wasn't, you know, because it, it's a familiar trope in movies, isn't it? You know, when the long-lost parent turns up and everything's great, and and you know, Daddy, you're here. Uh, uh, where really, it's more like Ad Astra, where you,
3: you <laughs> go to Saturn and there's your father, and he tries to kill you.
0: <laughs> well, it wasn't quite as bad as that, but well, <laughs> maybe for you it was. I don't know. But it's uh, Have you had? I mean, have you managed to establish a relationship with him? Oh, absolutely not. Right. Yeah. No. No. He sends me little electronic cards once in a while on
3: holidays. That's my entire relationship with him.
0: Mm. Why did you track down your father? I've asked myself that same question a few times. I, I think... I, I think Were you in conversation with your mother when you did that? My mum, yeah, my mum knew about it. I think it was just... Well, one part of it was a, a close friend, his dad died. Ah. So I kind of thought, "Oh, maybe I should track my dad down then. Sure. And I, and I was aware of the fact that, because I did have vague memories of him from being really young. He left so, when you were seven. Yeah, right? so it wasn't yeah. like, I guess in your case, it was just like a kind of legend that someone once existed. <laughs> yeah. But I did have actual real memories of him. Right. Quite fun memories, and, and so and then I was always being told when I was growing up. Usually, when I was doing something that irritated my mother, she would say, oh, "You just like your father." Ooh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I don't think you should, cu- you should curiosity tie her about down it. when she's asleep and tattoo that on her <laughs> arm or something. Um, so yeah, I was I was curious, and I, I have a sister as well, and, and she also was curious. So we decided that we would go and. Track him down. Did you go together to Australia? We did, yeah. Yeah. And it was awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know how we've got to this. We, should, we, we started off so light in this conversation, <laughs> didn't we? And, and now we've, we've gone there. How do you feel about Throbbing Gristle? Throbbing Gristle is one of two songs I like, but um, I've met Cozy Fanny mm-hmm. I, I I spoke to her on my radio show a, a few years ago. And I've never met Genesis P. Uh-huh. Is he living over here? Or? Yeah, he lives in
3: Brooklyn. Downstairs.
0: What, downstairs <laughs> from here? Are we I gonna, don't know. Are we going to go visit him in a minute? Um, actually, uh,
3: <laughs> come in, Genesis.
0: <laughs> anyway, what, why do you ask? Uh, well, you,
3: uh, you said that we were going dark, and I thought, well, we could All right, okay. uh, pursue that further. I met Chris and Cozy... Uh, when future Bible heroes played in London a decade ago or something. Mm. Um, And they were sweet, and they were like a a cute little middle-aged couple who talked about tea and didn't seem like they were going to eat anyone. No. Whereas the image of throbbing gristle was always basically, we are going to eat you.
0: Scary, yeah. I, I remember going to a party when I was about 17. That there was a guy in pulp in the very early years who was a couple of years older than me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was given a party and it seemed very sophisticated. And I went along. And then somebody put on a Throbbing Gristle album on it about three o'clock in the morning when everybody was really drunk. That's great. I think it was the, it's the one that's got Hamburger Lady on it. I think, that, is that DOA? Yeah, Yeah. I think you're right, yeah. Uh So I remember reading the story of that uh, and it really just... You know, when something just sticks in your mind and you can't get rid of it and and you feel really... I did feel really scared and really kind of disturbed by it. Uh And so I I avoided anything to do with uh, Throbbing Gristle for years and years and years after that. Right. So as with ourselves,
3: Throbbing Gristle went to art school Mm. and... uh, would you say that Pulp was partly an art project and that you are now
0: partly an art project? Uh, well, Pulp predated going to art school, you know. Right. I, I, the difference between being a
3: future art school student and a current art school student
0: is small. Yeah, I mean, small. I, I don't know about your experience, but, you know, I was brought up at that time when there was a fixation with the charts and things in, in the UK, like... Kids would really take an interest in the charts, and it was like, right. you know, you would follow your favorite group's progress up and down and really want them to get in the top 10 and stuff like that. So, right, that seems so that, bizarre now. Yeah, exactly. But it was like the thing. So, I kind of decided I wanted to be in a band like when I was probably about like seven, you know, uh-huh. before I had any ability to make that reality. But, and then as soon as I was kind of like in teenage years, I, I persuaded some other kids who were no good at sport to be in the band with me uh-huh. and it kind of went from there and actually the reason I went to art college was I, I'd kept doing the band after leaving school and it just didn't do anything and I saw art school as a, as a way to escape from uh, from Sheffield and to try something else so I when I went to art college I thought that that was the end of my my dealings with music really I was going to be a, an artist Right. I had that delusion for a while as well. Yeah. I thought so. What did you study at Films, oh, Film. Fox. Oh, right. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You said, yeah. I am the worst filmmaker in history. I bet that's not true. I bet I could show you some of my student work that would. <laughs> oh. <laughs> which would undercut that statement. I I don't know. Um, uh, but uh, we,
3: we could ask Genesis P for his own uh, student
0: work <laughs> and,
3: yeah. and um, see, have a little festival.
0: So, where was this? this college that you studied film?
3: Well, I went to NYU, and then uh, the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and then Harvard Extension.
0: So it sounds like you films must have been kind of okay, if you continued <sighs> oh, doing no. that. Oh, no. No? No. Um, but w- what was good was the music, actually. It,
3: uh, the soundtracks were a lot more interesting than the visuals.
0: And so is that what started you? making music I, I do no, make I'd music already be, before that I, I, yeah
3: I've been writing songs
0: since I was five or something
3: yeah. uh,
0: 50 years ago and uh, <laughs> uh, they haven't actually changed very much so were you like taught to play the piano did you had piano lessons as a kid and I like did that?
3: I had piano lessons guitar lessons and recorder lessons and percussion lessons I can still play more or less all of those things glad that I had lessons on them in high school, I had organ lessons, church, right. church organ, which was an enormous ego trip. I uh, bet, yeah. You, you depress one toe onto um, a, a wooden bar and it fills the stone church with an enormous rumbling.
0: Oh, That's so much fun to play the church organ. I've, I've never played, as I say, I, I can't read music and, I, and I, I wouldn't be able to do it, but I did once go... Uh, a friend of mine as a treat for my birthday about five years ago arranged that I could go and watch the guy playing the organ in the, in Notre Dame in Paris. Ooh. And that was amazing. Yes. Yeah. He, it was during a mass, so he was right up in the, you know, the rafters t- rafters of the loft, church. the loft. Yeah. And he had like a little CCTV screen that showed him the priest so he could kind mm-hmm. of check what part of the mass, the priest was up to. Because Notre Dame Cathedral is so gigantic yeah, that and there's yeah, no yeah, sight line. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing that I didn't realize was that I haven't got, uh, religion's never played a big part in my upbringing or anything like mm-hmm. that, so I kind of thought that maybe the mass, you know, I knew there was a structure to it, but I thought maybe I had specific pieces of music that had to be played at different parts. But, but as far as I could see from what he was doing, it was just like when it moved on from credo to gloria or whatever he just changed the style of what he was playing but there was no he wasn't working from uh, a manuscript or anything he was just kind of improvising and and he also had this like very young student there and at one point it made me think of it because you were talking about depressing the bass pedal so at one point he just kind of put his foot on the bass pedal and then he kind of beckoned for this kid to come over the kid sat on the stool and then he he took his foot off the pedal and the kid had to carry on oh. and played for like three minutes and then he came back and 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 carried on so it was that's fun just an incredible thing to to see him doing it but then to hear the the, the sound of it within there you know right it was amazing uh the great thing about playing church organ is no matter how badly you play it's still a
3: church organ and you sound amazing mm.
0: aren't there like five keyboards all above each other and then all the foot pedals and stuff and loads of different organ stops. Um, Yes. It's like, well,
3: the listener can't see that we are looking at literally a wall of synthesizers Mm. in this delightful studio. There's an ARP 2600, which looks like a telephone console from the first half of the 20th century. And that has no keyboard whatsoever. But most of the other things on the wall are... Nice, big, fat, chunky analog keyboards from the late 70s and early 80s. I recognize the Yamaha CS60, which is at least 60 pounds. Uh, I've, In way, I've, which, what I own this one, one here? but I've never been able to carry it myself. Right. Yes. I, I can't lift it at all. <laughs> the other thing that is great fun to play, even if you play it really badly, is the harp. And you are now working with a harpist. Yeah. Have you played it? She doesn't allow me to, to touch her instrument. Really? No. Um, I, I was a, that. Well, you know, you could just get one of your own, or even rent
0: one. Actually, uh, is, you can easily rent a harp. It's kind of a longer. mind-bending instrument because, uh, well, there are like those pedals to make it play in different keys. I, I wonder sure. about that. You know, you've got all these strings, but I, I, I'm fascinated. I mean, I love the sound of it. When I was taking harp lessons 10 years ago, I was doing it on the Celtic
3: harp, which doesn't have the pedals Mm. and you can
0: only change keys by quickly flipping levers around. Yes. Well, Sophie has got one of those for on stage because the other harp fed back too much. It was really difficult to amplify, but this one's like, it's electric. It's got a kind of pearlized white finish. It's quite nice. a jazzy kind of harp. <laughs> and, it, and you can play it stood up as well. It's uh-huh. like on, a, on a kind of stand. Is transporting it still a nightmare? Uh, it's got a kind of crazy case, yeah. yeah. Good, good shape. Looks good when you're going through customs in the airport. Uh, they believe people, you're people, actually a musician. <laughs> people are like looking, whoa, 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 that looks official mm. and serious. But how do you get on with playing the harp? Unfortunately... The beginning of my wearing
3: glasses was the end of my playing the harp. Right, you see. Uh, I actually couldn't see the strings. I couldn't see what I was doing. So
0: that didn't sit well with my harp teacher. What do you mean you can't see the strings? Yeah. But it is, yeah, like you say, you can just make an impressive sound straight away, a glissando yes you just rub your thumb uh, uh, up the harp and you sound like you're in heaven yeah mm. but Seraphina uses quite a few effects with it so sometimes it kind of sounds like a guitar or something I mm-hmm. think that's I kind of wanted to avoid the guitar I haven't quite managed to totally avoid the guitar in this band but it's got a much more minor role right I mean, g- traditionally, guitars, have they seem to be too much uh, kind of symbolic of a certain rock type of thing. In the early 80s, Laurie Anderson said to an
3: interviewer, I'm so tired of the sound of electric guitar. Mm. I can't stand it anymore except Captain B. Fart. Right. And I thought Captain B. Fart is the most electric guitar-y thing in, in the world. But I guess she, she thought that was an important carve-out. Mm. yeah. The sound of the electric guitar has kind of gone away to a large extent. You did two beautiful songs on the Air record a few years ago, where one doesn't miss the electric guitar being around you.
0: All right, well, thanks, yeah. Well. I wondered whether you'd been through a similar thing, because, again, I was reading about you on Wikipedia, uh-huh. and, and we've just talked it's about... modern s- life. Yeah, we've been talking about synthesizers, but then you forswore synthesizers for a while. Three albums, yeah. yeah. I can't you... remember why I thought that was a good idea. I well,
3: guess I felt as oppressed by synthesizers at that point. Oh, just because uh, they were too heavy? <laughs> <laughs> There's that. Um, no, I, I, I still had them all set up in my studio, which is insane. Three albums in a row, of instruments I knew I was not going to be using. you um, got very dusty. Uh, I had a housekeeper who took uh, care of that. Uh, I no longer feel oppressed by synthesizers because now we have modular synthesizers that are a completely different way of using that. So yeah, I, I may feel a little oppressed by my Yamaha CS60 that I've had since 1979 but there is an input plug in the back and if you connect a patch cord to the input plug and hold the other end of the patch cord with your teeth Isn't that that dangerous? No, it's a small amount of electricity. Can't really feel it. But it's fun to play with and it doesn't make a pleasant piano-like sound. Uh, It makes weird little squiggle sounds. All right. So even the late seventies conventional synthesizer technology
0: can be subverted mm. and uh, ha- had fun with. But do you find it important? I mean, I've found that in the past that if you try and play a new instrument, then that will kind of make you write different kinds of songs. You know, and I think that's why I've often done that. That if I well, I haven't got a lot of musical ability anyway, technical ability, but. Uh, trying to kind of make some kind of acceptable sound from a new instrument will kind of make you construct a song in a different way. And, and so it can. take you outside your normal kind of patterns of work. Uh,
3: I used to only buy an instrument if in the store playing it suggested at least two different songs. Right. Different songs, not two of the same songs. Mm. Um I should get back to that actually. I have I have too many instruments at this point. Mm.
0: Do you have instruments at home? I do, yeah. I was telling a story actually uh, yesterday when I was talking to someone. I almost retired uh, at the beginning of the year t- of the 2000s. And the reason was because uh, I moved to Paris with my wife who was pregnant at the time and I just kind of f- stopped, finished Pulp, and I thought, well, maybe this is it. You know, that's the end of music. I'll, I'm going to be a husband and, and a French person there, or whatever. I don't know, really, what, a filmmaker. I don't really know what I thought I was going to do. But anyway, I packed all my stuff up to drive to Paris to move, and I did say, I thought, well, I'll take a guitar with me, and I, and I put that on the roof rack of the car. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, you can see where this story's <laughs> leading. So, So... So on the way to the ferry <laughs> to go over to France, I'm hearing the sounds of the strings popping. No, it just it just fell off, and because and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, uh, I hadn't attached it properly, I'd never, yeah. really, I'd never really used a roof rack before. I just uh-huh. thought that's what you're supposed to do. Sure, it fell off, and it was driven over by this big massive lorry, and there was just absolutely <laughs> nothing left of it. There wasn't even like bits of wood. It was just like atoms. Yeah, yeah. and so. I was still quite superstitious in those days, and I kind of thought, well, that's a sign. Music's over for Uh you. So I arrived in Paris... Not that roof racks were over for you. (laughs) No, it should have been more that, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I arrived in Paris, and I didn't have a musical instrument. There was nothing in the house to play, so I have lived instrumentless. I suppose Uh is the point of that story. But I haven't got a lot of instruments in the house, but... Do you write with instruments, holding an instrument? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I used to do it with the guitar, but I I sound kind of off the guitar at the moment. But yeah, I've got a a good example, actually. There's a song on on the record called House Music All Night Long. Yes, which is pointedly not about Detroit house music. No, it isn't, no. It's about being stuck in the house, feeling frustrated. Yes, in which you rhyme claustrophobia and disrobing Yeah. Oh, did you like that? I did. Oh, thank you. That means a lot, thank you. That's one of my favourite rhymes. I, I, I giggled aloud. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't pee, but I right. did giggle. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but that came from, I, I was wandering through a market and there was a guy selling old instruments and there was like a, an old string synthesizer called an Elka Rhapsody. Oh, yeah. And uh, he let me have a go on it. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. A bit like what you say, if you think, oh, yeah, this could lead to something. Yeah. So it was re- that was very heavy. God, I nearly gave myself a hernia carrying that. And then I was you should bring a roadie every time you go shopping. Yeah, yeah very expensive to do that. But, yes. Um, and then I was kind of alone in the house, kind of going through a little bit of a kind of romantic breakup and, and not feeling good. And I thought, well, I've got to do something to get myself out of this kind of torpor. And I remember this keyboard, so I set it up and came up with this kind of progression that became that song so then when I was thinking well what's this song going to be about I thought well it it has to be about being alone in a house and then that led to thinking about house music right and and then that was it so I can't play the piano but I I, you know I can come up with a little pattern that I think is okay that's the same thing as playing the piano is it yes all right okay it's very reassuring if you can't play the piano, it means that nothing you do on the piano sounds good. As I say, I can't read music, and I know, but I know, I know the names of the notes. Uh-huh. We have a guy in the band who doesn't, uh-huh. um, who's more a kind of sounds and textures guy. He has these things; they look like recipe cards, which where he just draws a diagram that tells him where he has to put his finger at, at certain points in the concert. But, but you know, on, on um, what instrument? anything he's got like a little wasp synthesizer oh he I love he hasn't those. really got a proper keyboard it's just like a uh-huh. plastic with notes painted on it yes because I think I, I have a recent copy of that which right. is a joy to play yeah those do sound pretty good so his big thing is, is finding new sounds and he's really good at doing that and sometimes yeah. he kind of treats the sounds that other members of the band are playing ah so you this know, they, is they like kind of feed first through. two
3: albums Roxy Music Eno
0: Roll. Well, that's it. He sold it to me like that, in those almost those exact same words. Uh So he started off, he was at the mixing desk, and then he somehow wormed his way on stage. Oh, just like you know. And he decided... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is that the first time that you've had that role in your band? What? Playing the keyboard? Um, Playing the non-pianistic keyboard. Pult was a band, like, you know, made from friends in in Sheffield. And, sure. And it w- was more like the idea of having a gang of people that you like to hang out with. Right. And now this band is much like the bass player and the drummer. They were the rhythm section for this Scott Walker prom that happened a few years ago mm. in London. And I thought they were really good. So, you know, and they and they do other work. Ah. I have to pay them. <laughs> I've never really had a band like that where you... pay people people. I don't want to give the impression that nobody (laughs) in ever got paid but like in the Smiths but but it was like we were friends and then we did share the money that we eventually made Uh but but these people that's their job to be a musician so they have to be paid and I understand that and respect that yeah they won't they don't talk to me unless first of all there's an envelope of cash there Uh no it isn't like that there are very different ways of putting a band together well I was going to ask you what's your situation then um. Uh, I've always thought it'd be
3: nice to have a repertory company mm. like Fassbender or Orson Welles where you work with the same people again and again with a few shifts according to what you need rather than that there are these five people and they're always in the same band. Mm. That model seems like a recipe for being too repetitive like if there isn't a harpist in those five people then you don't have a harpist what fun Mm. is that Mm. you should be able to change quickly because otherwise you're going to be bored or me anyway i could never be in the rolling stones Mm. no wonder they hate each other they've been cooped up together for 55 years yeah what a nightmare that would be Whereas if you're in the London Symphony Orchestra, that's not the dynamic. When you have a party and you decide who your friends are at that moment for your party and you know that X is not talking to Y and Y and Z got divorced and you shouldn't invite them both to the same party until they're remarried or whatever, it should be like that when you have a band. You don't have to decide that you're going to invite them to every party you ever have again in your entire life. You're just thinking about which, who you're going to invite to this party. Mm. This party is at 9 o'clock at night, so you're not going to in- invite any children. But it doesn't mean that you're never going to have a party where there are children invited. So I guess I don't believe in the c- concept of a band.
0: Mm. But have you ever?
3: No. I have never released
0: two records with the same personnel in a row. As far as I know. Well, is that totally changed? Or, I mean, are there people who kind of are constants or, or keep coming back? Yes, there are people who keep coming back, which is what I like. Mm.
3: Like, w- when you have parties, you generally have similar people, <laughs> yeah, but not true. identical groups yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And that's what I like. Like, Orson Welles has Agnes Moorehead in two thirds of his movies, but not in all of them. A band idea that I like is the duo the the cliché of the uh, British one gay, one straight, electro-pop, pop duo, epitomized by Soft Cell. Mm. If two people can get along, they can be a duo. And when you have a duo, the membership does not change. Like, neither member of Soft Cell is going to go off and call something else Soft Cell. Ever.
0: No, they couldn't. Right. One could call it their thing soft, yes, and the other could call it sell, but they could never call it soft sell, right? Yeah, I went to see their they you know, they kind of did this big one off at Wembley, show, or it, it was at the O2, yeah, oh, the actually. O2 yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it started amazingly, but then it was a bit too comprehensive, uh-huh. if you know what I mean. In, 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 like in terms of they did Metro MRX or something, well, songs that I, I mean, I'm I suppose I'm, I'm not world's biggest authority on soft sell songs but it, I am. it got okay well yeah. maybe you would have recognized it but it was a bit it diluted it a little bit they started uh-huh. with memorabilia which was an sure. amazing beginning right but then also part of it was um, and i find this a lot now i don't know if you find it you know with shows that since screen technology has become more kind of ubiquitous people feel they have to yeah. use a screen all the time yeah and so you end up feeling like you're just at home watching TV... Right. ...rather than watching a band playing. Yes. And, and because they were playing I all these songs... I've hated that since the 80s. Right, okay. I'm with you on that one. Cool. Because they were playing all these songs, and they felt like they had to have some visuals for it, so they, it looked like they'd given some friends like maybe £15 pounds to go and film stuff with a camcorder. Oh uh, And it could have been good, but it was uh-huh. pretty bad. Uh-huh. And Anyway it was a shame because there was a great atmosphere at that concert people had come from all over the place and there was a real feeling of affection and people wanting something great to happen and it didn't quite happen uh-huh. as as well as it could have done in my opinion anyway. right i never had the opportunity to see soft so right. i've seen i never saw them
3: back mark at, a number of times right. i've met them but i haven't seen them on stage together
0: i actually Totally love both of them. Well, Se- of- separately. I've I've met Mark Arman briefly, but I never I never met Dave Ball.
3: He is the sexiest person conceivable. Really? Yes. His.
0: It didn't look that his sexy. His voice
3: <laughs> down here. Yeah. It,
0: it, it, he sounds like an ogre. It's oh, okay. wonderful. He didn't even talk. I don't think on stage at the, uh, at no, the of show because he no. was he was <laughs> playing his synths. Right. Okay. That's the shtick. But, yeah, getting back to screens, um, I went to see Stevie Wonder play in Hyde Park in London. And somehow I managed to get really quite near the front of the stage. So, you know, I was within 50 feet of Stevie Wonder, you know. Mm-hmm. And But they had this massive screen at the side. And I had to really concentrate. I, in fact, in the end, I kind of held my hand at the side of my head to kind of form a blinker. Yeah. So that I wouldn't be tempted to look... ...on the screen, because we're saying, look, Stevie Wonder is there... ...right there in front of you, look at Stevie Wonder... ...don't look at the TV image of him... ...you could do that on YouTube when you go home if you want to... ...look at the man there, Yeah, it's just, uh, it's a crazy thing, you know.
3: I guess if you're all the way at the back, then... ...and you can't see Stevie Wonder as anything other than a little unresolved dot... ...then maybe the screen makes sense... Or you could just
0: see him in a smaller venue. Difficult, though. Mm. I don't think he plays such small venues. Or you could buy some binoculars. Binoculars are good. Yeah. Yeah. Opera glasses. Yeah. I have opera glasses, actually. Do you?
3: Yeah. With you? They're fun. No. <laughs> but given an hour and a
0: half, I could uh, <laughs> rush home and get them and come back. Is that, I mean, because you go to the opera, or, or you liked them? You, I like them. Right. They're vintage, well, they're probably antique, actually. Are, are opera they're glasses pewter, the ones, are they really. like the ones that you've got like a stalk to hold them in front of they're, your face? They're basically,
3: they're tiny binoculars.
0: Oh, just, oh, right, yeah. and in a nice kind of carrying case. Yes. Right, okay. Yes. Mm. They're lovely. What's your whereas opinion on binoculars that? are generally uh, quite ugly. Yeah, yeah. And clunky. What's your opinion of opera?
3: I like making it more than I like watching other people's most right. of the time. I vastly prefer modern opera. Right. Um, Philip Glass, Howard Shore. I'm not a fan of the, the wide vibrato style. I'm not really a fan of vibrato at all. I, I guess I like vibrato in violins,
0: but not really in voices. Mm. I really don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've, I've tried to the, the voice is one of the main things that puts me off because of mm-hmm. this having been brought up in the age of microphones I just can't understand why somebody's bellowing the head off and and using that vibrato to, right. to kind of like modulate the voice just
3: but I also don't really like pure tone when I'm trying to hear what the lyrics are but I guess if the lyrics are in Italian anyway it doesn't matter
0: well, yeah, and then, but then when you go, so somebody's singing in Italian, but then they have like subtitles. Sure. So that's also irritating. <laughs> because I don't know, I mean, that's another thing I would like to ask you about, actually, because a lot of the lyrics on the record that I listened to I, I liked and, and made me laugh quite a lot. Oh, good. Thank you. But, but do you, I mean, if you were given the choice, would you have a lyric sheet or would you not have a lyric sheet? I always have a lyric sheet. Yeah. Because for me... I've never put out a record that didn't have a lyric sheet. Right, because I feel that lyrics are part of a song. I don't like the idea of somebody reading a lyric sheet whilst they listen to the record. That's the thing. In fact, I've always put that on on our lyric sheets, is is that I've said, NB, please do not read these lyrics whilst listening to the record. And the reason is that it's like the situation I described with the opera. When, When... when the lyrics are kind of abstracted from the performance or the song, then when you're comparing the written version with the sung version, the sung version is always going to be kind of shoehorned a little to fit with the rhythm of the song or to fit with the melody that someone's written. And so it will start to sound phony. Whereas if you just listen to a song and that's the first time you hear those words, you accept that phrasing. And also good lyricists will make sure that they don't break up you know the the syntax too much that it sounds uh, uh artificial
3: although enjambment for humorous effect can be delightful most of the time it interferes with your perception of the meaning So when I was listening to your record in the last few days, the first thing I did was listen to the record, and then I read the lyrics that Elias sent me. And then I listened to it again. um, So I, in fact, without consciously remembering uh, your preference, I I did that, actually.
0: I like looking at the lyric sheet when not listening to the music. Yeah, that's fine. Because sometimes, also, it's just practical because you might not catch every single word right so i don't mind that bit yeah but it's just that thing of of divorcing it from the musical setting whilst it's actually going on it all stems back i think it stems back from when i bought dark side of the moon when i was a kid mm-hmm. we had a babysitter who used to come around and play dark side of the moon which used to really freak me out because of all that thing with the guy laughing you know the uh-huh. lunatic is on the grass <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and i would just shit myself I like, was thinking there's some mad person in the house is going to come and get me oh no but i also kind of got fascinated with that record so i knew i, I kind of saved up thinking that would be the first record that i would buy with my own money uh-huh. kind of thing so I went out and bought it and then you know rushed home put it on and, and got the lyrics out and and had this kind of you know kind of crumbling feeling of of what i'd heard you know coming through the floorboards and it seemed like really deep they were singing about really deep things and then when you you really looked at the lyrics and saw them in such a bold way whilst the music was playing it, it seemed very kind of schoolboy poetry kind of thing. All. yeah and it was yes. a really kind of crushing blow for me hmm
3: is that your first experience of disappointment in music?
0: <laughs> um, that you remember? Uh, yeah, it's probably one of the the most profound ones, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. it's, uh, it, it's definitely probably led to me going through this whole kind of rigmarole of trying to stop people from reading <laughs> lyrics whilst listening to music, which obviously I have no way of checking whether people are actually a deer into that (laughs) rule. Right. Uh, Video cameras. (laughs) It continues to
3: drive me crazy when people don't have lyric sheets. It used to be hard to find out what the lyrics actually are. Brian Eno looking at you. For decades, I loved taking Tiger Mountain by strategy and couldn't tell what he was saying for, I don't know, a quarter of each song, Hmm. which is so irritating. And then More Dark Than Shark came out and had all these lyrics suddenly. And the lyrics were routinely not at all what I thought they were. Mm. So that was a disappointment? In some cases it was a disappointment, and in other cases uh, the lyrics were more interesting than I thought they were. Like uh, Pawpaw Negro Blowtorch turned out to be about an actual hospital patient, this before hamburger lady, who came into the hospital in Paw Paw, Pennsylvania or something like that, basically breathing fire. He had drunk so much alcohol that he
0: was essentially on fire and died soon, of course. See, now that's going to haunt me I've probably just got over hamburger lady, and now, oh, yes. <laughs> and now I've got that to haunt me. Taking it dark, <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, yeah. There's a lot of
0: hospital songs. It's
3: what a about, wonderful
0: modern lover's song, hospital. When you what? get out of the hospital, you've told me about you know having um, music lessons when you were younger. But what about? As soon as we're on the subject of lyrics, you know, when did you kind of? Were you doing that from the start? writing words to go along with bits of music that you came up with yeah since i was very young Mm. i was writing songs before
3: i could play any instruments i basically learned to play instruments so that i could write songs on them which is awkward because i actually don't write on instruments anymore i haven't for a long time hardly ever
0: am i actually holding an instrument when i write a song all right, so, so will lyrics be the first thing that you write then? And then you'll try and think of a musical setting for that. Lyrics
3: and, and melody at the same time. I try to do music and lyrics at
0: the same time, otherwise one of them takes over. All right, but you write in the music rather than playing on a keyboard or...
3: I try and remember the music. I, I write down the lyrics hoping that the next day I will remember how the melody went. As suggested by the lyrics on the page, mm. on the Abba theory that if you don't remember the music,
0: no one else will either. Yeah, actually, and also, I, I spoke to Paul McCartney at an event a couple of years ago, and I was asking him how, about because he doesn't read music or anything, and I was saying, right. "Well, how did you remember songs when you, in the early days of the Beatles?" Because well, first of all, I think I used to be a tape recorder. Uh-huh. But they weren't, you know, they certainly weren't common things at those, at that time. Right. Like, late 50s. And so you said, very similar to what you, you just said, that they would write a song, maybe write some words down, play it a few times, and then when they met again the next day, if they could still remember it between the two of them, then they'd think, oh, yeah, that song's okay then. And if somehow it disappeared in the interim, they thought, oh, it couldn't have been that good anyway. I approve. Yeah. I approve of the Beatles. They can stay. Yeah, and, and actually he said that he thought that was a good way to work because obviously now we've all got recording devices you know, you, you got, with your telephone and so you can record everything if you want. Right. And, but, and I do do that. I don't know if you do you sometimes get a bit of melody or, or something that will come in the middle of the night or something. Yes. And um, Not in the middle of the night, but yes,
3: while driving. Well. Actually, Gary Newman says that he mostly writes songs in the car. Really? So, with a recording device that he he's keeps trying to in get back car. to
0: that glory days of writing the song, cars, though. Isn't <laughs>
3: uh, <laughs> I imagine him having a completely JG Ballardian
0: life in which he is simply always in the car. Yeah. What kind of car do you think he's got? I happen to know what kind of car oh, he's you? got. Uh, oh, hold on a minute. So let me. Can I? Am I allowed to guess of it? Um, it is exactly what you think it's going to be. All right. Okay. Well. I would imagine it would be four wheel drive. Um,
3: I don't know enough about the <laughs> engine specifics of the car.
0: Well, I imagine it's quite chunky, like it would go into a dystopian landscape, you know, and, and drive on unpaved roads and things like that. Um, to the contrary, it's a smart car. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, right. Oh, it's Tesla. A-
3: apparently, he and his wife have, you no, know, the, the little tiny, uh, smaller than a Mini Cooper. Smart car. He and his wife have all of the panels that are available for the smart car. You you can detach them. And, you know, if the police are in pursuit, you can change from orange marbleized car
0: to blue and white stripes. Well, I don't even know that these cars exist. Ah. I don't watch Top Gear, you see. (laughs) Nothing
3: is as glamorous as seeing Gary Newman and his wife... driving
0: down the street in Soho, uh, lit from below by the dashboard. Uh, I, I was barking at the wrong tree. I Because the last time I saw Gary Newman perform, he was playing at a festival. Did the Mighty Boosh ever kind of become a thing over here? You know, they were like a comedy duo? No. All right. it was They were good, actually. And they were really big in the UK, and they'd had their own festival one year. Ah. Uh, I got asked to DJ at it, but Gary Newman played at it. Mm -hmm. and he was in a very kind of cyberpunk kind of phase at that time. Right. With a slight goth edge as well. Those beautiful long black leather coats. Yeah, and and quite kind of platformy kind of boots. Uh So I kind of saw him in a... I suppose I was thinking of Mad Max. I was thinking of some kind of four-wheel drive vehicle with bits coming off it. The smart car is much more... Charming. I, mean, I aspire
3: to wear Gary Newman's cast off clothing. Right. Well, I'm sure if
0: you asked him nicely. Um, hmm. He was one of the first uh, people I ever saw alive, actually. Really? Uh, my sister was obsessed with him back in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And he was playing in Sheffield at the, at the City Hall. And she really wanted to go, but she was only. 13 or 14, and my mum said she couldn't go on her own, so I had to kind of chaperone her to the Gary Newman show. Aww. But secretly, I was quite glad about that. Yeah. I was trying to pretend that I'm not that into him actually, but <laughs> I, was, I was quite uh, intrigued to see what he was like. Yeah, was really fun. It was pretty good. Yeah. You are also fun live.
3: How do you do that? <laughs> fun live? Yes. Antics. <laughs> You move around. Uh, yes. You already know the songs. Yeah. I can't move around because I'm reading the lyric sheet.
0: Right. And yeah. playing the ukulele or whatever. You like dance and things like that. Yeah, because that's, I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were discussing before of, of having it loud as well. That yes. For me, that time on the stage is really like the time, you know, life can be filled with situations and things that, you either feel you haven't got control of or you're not very good at dealing with or whatever but on stage it's like this is my domain and I can just have fun and and also I, I kind of want to feel the music moving through you, and so that means that you dance along to it as well right? and I I do go along with you know I, I like to feel that feeling of being a bit transported and, and I often feel that I'm always getting asked about specific shows but I shows that go really well I don't really have any memory of because they're the shows where you just do it and you're not really even thinking about it. Right. So I, I, I like that part of it. Even though I am never transported
3: during shows I also don't have the don't have memory of the uh, individual
0: shows mm. except if something went horribly wrong. Exactly, yeah. You remember the bad ones or the disasters or yes. all stuff like that. Right. But um, if a show goes well I don't know. You You... You are in that moment, aren't you? You, you kind of um, there's nothing to think about except doing what you're supposed to be doing well. Yes. And and I like that. You know, it, it's uh, it's like meditating or something. You know, you kind of just do it and and then it's over, and then people tell you it's good. Yes, <laughs> that's nice.
3: Um, so you are both storytelling and being a singing, dancing, entertainer at the
0: same time. Yes. Which is something not a lot of people can pull off. You think? I don't know. It's like, well, I suppose it, it, it's acting the songs out, you know. It's mm-hmm. a bit like a school play or something. I mean, <laughs> I'm into dramatics. Yes. but uh, And that's why, I don't know, like, I have been asked sometimes if I would be in a film or something like that. Because I think people see you on stage and they see me, Jumping around and think, oh, that there's a confident guy. Uh-huh. He can, you know, yeah, it he's doesn't not self. And, and, <laughs> and it's it's absolutely not the case. You know, I can't yeah. act because I don't know whether did you. You know, when you were studying film, yeah. did you appear in any, any of the films that you made of my own? Mm. No, but did you have to appear in other students' films? Yes. Yeah, that's what happened to me because you kind of get your student friends to help out on your film, like, will you do the sound or the lighting on my film? And then yeah. they'll say, well, there's a small role for a magician <laughs> in, in this film I'm making. I uh-huh. think you could do it and you yeah. kind of can't refuse because they've helped you. with right. So I did appear in a, in a number of films when I was at college and I know from bitter experience that I have no ability to act. How about you? I remember uh, having... A
3: role in which I ate Comet cleanser and pineapple. Cleanser? Comet. It's poisonous. Right. uh, A poisonous household product and uh, pineapple and threw up.
0: Right. Oh, so you ate the right. You weren't like pretending to eat.
3: No, I wasn't. That would have been a good idea, (laughs) but that wasn't uh, what happened.
0: So you almost so made it a wasn't snuff actually movie. an
3: acting role, but it was a, a behaving role. Right. Uh, yes, I was my own, I did my own stunts. Ugh. It wasn't a good idea.: No.: <laughs> uh, Now I'm allergic to pineapple. I wonder if there's any relationship.: Are you really allergic to pineapple? Yeah, actually. Wow. If I eat pineapple that has gone a little sour, my lips swell up, and I look. Amazing. All right. And then I look deformed and then I look amazing. And then I look normal again. All right. Right, over the course of forty five minutes. All right. I I go like from me to Sophia Loren <laughs> to the cat lady to Sophia Loren
0: back to me. Wow. As far as I know, I'm not allergic to any foodstuffs. Oh. Well, just you wait. I think most people are allergic to
3: something. Are you allergic to anything non food related? No, I don't don't think
0: so. Cool. I don't really like lentils. I mean, I feel that they're not for me. Uh But I mean, it's not an allergy. Right.
3: I like lentil soup if it's well made.
0: Mm. Um, I like lentils. Lentils in the abstract are nasty. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Anyway, we, we probably shouldn't go there. Mm. Um, okay, so we I guess we're coming to the end of this conversation. Apparently. Uh, yeah, well, we've been told that we are. Uh, I think we've degenerated <laughs> to discussing lentil soup. How can we kind of wrap things up neatly? Do you like that about songs, the fact that, you know, you, in life we can't wrap things up neatly, can we? But a song, for that time that the song is there, you can really make life make sense or
3: or obey And yet you. I'm famous for my abrupt endings. Right. Where you don't actually know that the ending has even occurred. You might think it's just a rest, but then the next song starts and it's at a different key and tempo. Hmm. But that's a decision. So
0: yes. that's your shtick. So you, well well not a shtick, but you so you if you're doing that um intentionally, you kind of is there some part of you that doesn't want people to get too comfortable with what they're listening to apparently yeah yeah i'm big
3: on disrupting the narrative subverting what seemed to be my intentions at the beginning of the song because
0: apparently i'm shooting myself in the foot at every opportunity but is that where do you think well you may not not know where that comes from but you know where, where do you think that the desire to do that comes from have you got any idea uh self-destructive streak i don't know i get asked about that kind of stuff i i don't write songs that do that so much but i i am aware that the songs that i write kind of follow a kind of generally speaking the structure is fairly conventional mm-hmm. but then i will try to kind of slip some lyrical subject matter in there that maybe shouldn't be or if you feel she wouldn't be in a normal pop song or something and i've always liked being to, both pharaoh and Chaplin. yeah but, I, but i've liked to do that always yes and uh, I, I don't i can't really put my finger on why i like i think it's a good thing to do but i keep doing it so i must like it you're so a richard broadigan fan i am a richard broadigan fan yeah he
3: does a great deal of that uh the hundred and eighty-six thousand endings per second Mm. At the end of, I think it's in Watermelon Sugar. Mm. Um, Do you have his
0: album? I have got his album, yeah. I I love the song. A plug for Richard Brodigan. Yeah. How did you first come to read
3: Richard Brodigan? There was a box set of three of his books. And I have always loved the idea of, of box sets. I have far too many box sets the label I collect most is Bear Family Mm. who do entirely box sets Uh, so there was a a box set of three tiny little paperbacks all in bright colors there was The Abortion 1966, The Pill Versus the Spring Hill Mind Disaster and Revenge of the Lawn all in a little blue box and I I couldn't not have it Mm. and I took it home and I loved them and how long ago would this be? I was probably 10. Really? Maybe 11. And this was definitely before I had any records and box sets. How did you come to Richard
0: Brodigan? L- Later in life, I-, I kind of was aware of him, but I'd got him down as a hippie writer. Because uh-huh. you know, he generally speaking, he's often on the cover of his books, isn't he? which is definitely looking like a hippie yeah and so i just thought i don't don't want to read hippie literature Uh and then i think when i first moved down to london i was kind of staying in Cindy's house because a flat had fallen through and i was looking for something to read and and it was the abortion Mm -hmm. uh, was was there and as soon as i started reading it i thought well this is amazing and i kind of felt stupid for being resistant to it you know and then but at that time it was really hard to get hold of his books because the they were all out of print in the UK, so you right. had to kind of look around junk shops and, and things like that. Now they're in compilations, hmm. which I find kind of irritating. I think, well, in fact, you mentioned Revenge of the Lawn, and, and some of the stories in there are very, some of them are like two lines long, aren't they? Yes. So it's a little bit like your record, <laughs> in a way. Uh, quite right, Yeah. yes. Um, I hadn't thought of that before,
3: but now I have. He's certainly a major influence for me mm.
0: um and lydia davis is another big one really uh, for, okay for, for well i'm album. gonna write that down because my memory's so bad that i won't remember that unless i write it down lydia davis lydia davis okay i'm gonna write that down uh, she is the queen of brevity
3: right inspired brevity okay because brevity is the soul of wit, of wit. Of wit.
1: Just like that, in an act of abrupt ending, Steven literally dropped the mic. (laughs) What a magical time. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us on today's show. If you enjoyed today's episode, definitely make sure to revisit Stephen Merritt and Daniel Handler discussing all things 69 Love Songs on its 20th anniversary. Also, our producer Mark flagged up for me something I didn't even realize. Back in 2014, Stephen wrote a wonderful review for Antonio Sanchez's score for the movie Birdman.
2: Deep dive in the archive. I had a good laugh reading that one. Some of the artists that came up in today's talk have actually been on the show before, including The Smiths' Andy Rourke and Throbbing Gristles' Cozy Fanny Tootie and Genesis Peoridge. Yeah, and I- I've gotten to
1: work with Genesis many times over the years, and we developed a sort of funny professional friendship or I should say semi-professional friendship because of some of the pictures they surprisingly showed me. (laughs) Now, the last time I ever texted with them was during this session to let them know that Jarvis and Steven were talking about the group and to see if Jen wanted to say a quick hello. They were battling cancer and alas, not well enough to speak, but sent their quote, sincere best wishes. I wrote back saying that when they were feeling better, I'd love to introduce them to Steven, that he's a brilliant mind and they would get along famously. Jen asked what the guys were saying about Throbbing Gristle, and I said I'd send the episode when it came out. Alas, they passed away before I was able to. Here's to you, Jen. Thanks so much for inspiring the brilliant weirdos. RIP Genesis P. Orange, a true original. Our theme song was composed and
2: performed by The Range. Today's show is recorded by our producer, Mark Yoshizumi. Listeners, you can catch fantastic photos of Jarvis, Steven, and the amazing synth wall that they mentioned in today's talk at all TalkHouse social channels. On Instagram, you can catch the
1: fantastic talk between Elado Negro and Buscabuya that happened a couple weeks back. You can watch that in its entirety and make sure to keep an eye for the Julian Baker, Katie Harkin talk. Check out the events tab at TalkHouse.com or keep an eye on the socials to know when the next TalkHouse podcast live is happening. Listeners, Sonos Radio asked me to host a show called Radio Hour on their flagship station, Sound System. Jarvis and I sat down for a deep dive on Pulp and his brand new record, and then he spins a fantastic guest DJ set that'll be airing sometime this early summer. Definitely check out Sound System for that one. Till next week, I'm Ellie Einhorn. And I'm Josh Modell. Peace. Peace. And quickies beyond the pale.